What are you going to do, Commissioner? There's only one thing we can do. Sir, it's the Batfoot. Yes, Commissioner. Batman. We'll be right there. Big Bam Pow. This is Batman Land. Be careful. Maybe a trap. Each week we chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. We're Batman and Robin, a crime fighters. Discussing the episodes that aired this week on SBS Viceland. My name is Dan Barrett, and walking like an Egyptian into the Batman Land studio is Nick Bassine. It's a real pleasure to be here, Dan. So let's go, Rob. Your sincerity is confusing me. I'm just distracted by the stretchy Batman over there on the um, But table. the stretchy Batman is not our guest. No. Yeah, instead we are actually joined here in the studio, holding the stretchy Batman. It's John Turnbull. He's the SBS sales guy. He's an adventure balloonist. He's a Batman fan. And he's a recovering comic book shop retailer. Indeed. Yeah, now you tick so many boxes here. Oh, thank you. I, I'm a nerd from a long way back, so I'm, I'm very glad to be on this very nerdy podcast. Yeah, now I first met you because you're an SBS sales guy. I'm sure you've got a job title. I do. I'm the strategy manager. So <laughs> I work with the sales yeah. team, but not actually doing the selling. So okay. I just come up with consumer insights and ideas and that sort of thing. I stare yeah. out the window a lot. Yeah, I'd imagine. You know, management will be listening. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so let's tick off a few things here. I found out before we started recording, you're like an adventure balloonist. Yeah, hot air ballooning is a, a family sport for me, if you can indeed call this a sport. Now, I'm calling it adventure balloonist. Is there a lot of adventure up there? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's fully adventurous, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, it, it's one of the safest things you can possibly do in the air. But, you know, we go to adventurous places like Canoundra and Leeton. Now, at any point, are you hovering over water-based areas with some sort of shark repellent, just in case some... I always carry my bat shark repellent when yeah. I'm flying in Canberra because they have Lake Burley Griffin there, and there are rumours of a lake shark. Jeez. Okay, well, I'm not stopping by there anytime soon. Now, I want to talk to you about the comic book retailing in a little while, because it wasn't like you just worked in a comic book store at any given point. You worked there during the time, like the most exciting time for comic books, I think which is that glorious time of the mid-90s. That's right, the height of comic books. It was my university job. Yeah. And, and I rose from lowly stock boy to manager of the Phantom Zone in Chatswood, the sadly closed Phantom Zone in Chatswood, which mm. was a wonderful store and a haven for, for nerds and malcontents and weirdos from around the area. Yeah, as far as Australian comic book stores go, like that's actually an iconic store. So we're going to get to that. Fantastic, yeah. looking forward to it. But first, Nick, we have ourselves an episode with King Tut. He's back. He is back. He's knocked his head. And he's found villainy once more. Now, as per usual, I didn't quite get the storyline. What happened this week? So, um, King Tut's henchmen steal some beads. A string of amber beads. Amber beads? The police figure out that King Tut is involved. The mad monarch must once again be on the loose. And instead of doing their jobs, or at least firing themselves so someone else could do their jobs. Gentlemen, I propose to call Batman. They call Batman and Robin, who track King Tut to an apothecary. The apex apothecary shop in the pyramid building. Where they're trying to resurrect scarabs for some reason. Royal subjects, I have returned. Batman and Robin are easily defeated by powder and their own sneezing. Don't be a booby. King Tut steals Bruce Wayne's sphinx with Robin inside, but Robin, as always, is completely useless. It was my fault, Batman. And gets dragged out of the sphinx and is threatened with some stock footage of a crocodile, which terrifies him. Holy jawbreaker. Batman saves Robin, a woman that looks like Elizabeth Banks, Rufy's Chief O'Hara, and he almost commits suicide. A little acrobatic. Use the pole. King Tut drugs Commissioner Gordon. Now listen very carefully. And hypnotizes Batman. Tut, you are the greatest. But he was faking it. Batman's come out of his spell. He fights and he wins. Batman, that big ninny. Now, I went into this episode, I saw it was King Tut. And much like last time, I was very apprehensive 
And Nick, you were with us on the last one with Kings I was, Heart, right? yeah. yeah. I was really into it last time. Now I'm just, I think it's a little weird that he keeps getting hit in the head. He's a professor. Yeah. Wow, how is, how is he, where is he professing that he's, it's so dangerous? Well, it wasn't ordinary professorial duties that caused him to get hit on the head this time. It was part of what they referred to as a teach-in. Professor fell off the podium during a teach-in and hasn't been seen since. At the university? It's like a love-in, but with more teaching. Yeah, evidently. A lot more textbooks. Yeah, but last time, the first episode of The King's Heart Two-Parter was kind of terrible, but by the second part, I was completely won over. This time through, I walked into it thinking, I don't want to watch King Tut episode. But then two things hit me. One, I remembered, like, the last episode, which was great. It was a lot of fun. Isn't that Batman really turns me on? That was the thing with Nefertiti. Yeah. 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 Nefertiti, one of my favorite characters so far in Batman. Classic character. Yeah, she's fantastic. Uh, But then also the director of this two-parter was Larry Pierce from the Bookworm two-parter, which so far has been my favorite episodes of the show. And what I think is great about Larry Pierce's work is he really gets the best comedic performances out of a lot of the actors on the show. And I do think that in this one, Adam West has two or three great moments. Victor Buono has a fairly good comic moment. But also, while, I mean, obviously you're only going to get so far with uh, Boy Wonder, there's one of the henchmen in this that I think deserves particular attention. Uh, Sid Haig, who I'm getting a nod of recognition from John Turnbull over here, uh, Sid Haig, people would know from all sorts of cult and weird films from the last 30-odd years. Uh, you see him in a lot in sort of like Tarantino films and that kind of thing. What's your favourite Sid Haig performance? Um, I think he might have been in Land of a Thousand Corpses, the yeah. Rob Zombie movie. Yeah, that's and, when I first really realised who he was. Yeah, and, and dark, but an intelligent henchman, which I think is a rarity for Batman. Yeah, and his performances, this is fantastic. I'd always be happy to get rid of the King Tut and just have that guy. I do have all kinds of potions, lotions... And notions in stock. Oh, look, I think in in the real world that would happen. He would just hit cut on the head again and, and shift him off and really take over the gang because he had vision, that henchman. Yeah. Uh, weird thing happening with this episode, and I've seen other episodes this season. Have they gotten rid of the joke with Bruce and Dick having to have an excuse to get away oh, from yeah, Harriet? They, didn't, they haven't done that. It's yeah, been I feel like they've seen this. They may have given it up. That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's an excuse to start getting rid of Aunt Harriet a little bit more because she does get phased out of the show and disappears for season three onwards. She probably wanted a raise or something. Yeah, probably. Poor Aunt <laughs> more lines. Yeah, she got mouthy. So there's, like with all um, of these episodes, there's a lot of drugging involved. There is indeed, but not with Batman because Batman never resorts to any medication. Like a Christian scientist. Exactly. Not good, not good for a man who sees that much action, surely. He explains he seldomly resorts to medication and that the body has amazing restorative powers. <laughs> and that got me thinking, <laughs> if Batman is so anti-medication and is really a believer that the body will cure all, is he an anti-vaxxer? Well, I was thinking anti-vaxxer, Scientologist, Christian scientist, mm. or um, maybe some other, you know, old-timey, um, just ancient... Uh, appealing methods. And we're adding that to fascist, which is almost a given with Batman. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely some sort of scientist. We know he's a scientist. Yeah, we know, we know he's a scientist. Homer, there's a man here who thinks he can help you. Batman? No, he's a scientist. Batman's a scientist. It's not Batman. <laughs> in Commissioner Gordon's office, he's got a woman in because uh, somebody has... a tray of pills. His normal uh, secretary is sick. And yeah, mm. she's just pushing pills all day. It's like Studio 54 in there. Yeah, it just seems <laughs> very strange. Why does she keep pushing the pills? And, and why don't they think this is odd? I mean, is it just Tuesday's pill day? 
Yeah, just give it a rest I mean, with the pills. That, that, that's an awesome sort of approach to work life. I'm, maybe we can get it going in here. But. It seems yeah. like it's not just once a day because Ms Patrick brought in his mid-morning vitamins, which makes me think there's maybe a mid-afternoon vitamin as well and a going-home vitamin at the end of the day. Uh, she was a relief staffer for Bonnie, who's his regular secretary. Right. Yeah. Now, presumably, there's opiates in that tray that she's carrying around. One would hope. Something for you, Batman? No, no pills. Uh, it was in these scenes in the offices that one of my favourite scenes from the episode had Batman picking up the phone to call the dean of the university that Professor... Uh, Professor um, Hugs-a-Bunch? Yeah, Professor Hugs-a-Bunch. <laughs> so he's on the line saying, hey, you know, Dean Gerber, what's the deal with Professor Hugs-a-Bunch? But when he calls up, he's like, hello, Dean Gerber, this is Batman. And you've got a great Adam West moment where he's like, Batman? Batman. B-A-T-M-A-N. It's a great joke. It's Fantastic. They should, uh, there's so many of these things that should be done every episode. Yeah, but I think it's the Larry Pierce aspect. So some of the best ones with Adam West like that was in his previous episodes, and here we've got it happening again. So I'm sad to note that there's only two more episodes with him. Oh, failure! Abject failure! Speaking of uh, drugs and how Batman takes care of himself, did I did was the plot just whipping by me? And I did I miss when he's drinking those glasses of milk? Are, are we meant to know? Eventually, we know, but when he's drinking them, are we supposed to know why he's drinking five glasses of milk? No, that did seem odd to me as well. It was just he really likes milk. You know, maybe he's got bad bone issues or that sort of thing, early osteoporosis. Well, this is why he doesn't need medication. He's drinking all the milk. He's drinking so much milk, yeah, but it sort of explains why he's slowly expanding, drinking that much, you know, full (laughs) full fat milk. That's not getting higher and higher. One of my favourite moments from the episode is after the second glass, uh, Adam West just has a look on his face. It's amazing. It's kind of a, uh, God, i got to drink three more of these. It was very funny. Got a good laugh out of it. And a method actor, clearly. He's amazing. Like Cool Hand Luke, no man can eat 50 eggs. How many glasses of water can a man eat? That's right. Uh, Now, awesome moment that we had with the uh, walk up the building and we see two guest stars pop their heads through. Oh, this got me excited. Yeah, well, I'd imagine. So this was Green Horner and his assistant, Kato. So what happened was when they were producing the TV series, obviously first season very successful. They rushed a companion show onto the air, which was the Green Hornet. Unlike Batman, which is very camp, they kept it very, very serious. So their costumes are more sort of like just suits with like some Robin-style domino uh, Wait, face hold on, masks. hold on. Did Bruce Lee pop it, his head out? Yeah, yeah, it was Kato. See, I had to go to the bathroom during a point <laughs> in these episodes, and I, I thought, no, nah, I won't pause it. Yeah, you missed, like, missed one of the best cameos. The best cameo ever. I, I did actually have to go and check as they did it because, I mean, you know, Bruce Lee had a, a brief life, I guess. Yes. But, you know, that, that was absolutely during the filming time and yet they, they turned up him amazing. and the Hornet's name who absolutely escapes me because, uh, you know, I don't think he ever became a big star. Uh, it was Van Williams? Van Williams, yes, not yeah. Van Wilder. It's, no. It's the other guy. God, well, that is hugely disappointing. I'll have to go back yeah. and watch that. Uh, I can tell you it happens about 10 minutes into the episode. Aren't you in the wrong city? On special assignment for the Daily Sentinel. You know my aide, Cato? Robin? The boy wonder. Well, I don't want to hold you up from your crime fighting. Thank you, and good luck to you, Mr. Hornet. Nice to have met you. Because there, there is a crossover episode, isn't there? There is. So this is the first appearance of Green Hornet and Kato. So when this episode went to air, the Green Hornet series was about three or four episodes in. So this is their way of trying to bring people over to the new show crossover. and you know, do a little bit of... Full was sizzle. the Green Hornet supposed to be a, a children's show? No, it's a lot more adults. 
So it's kind yeah. of really a throwback to a lot of the like movie a lot serials. Of full from the, yeah, a lot of full frontal. It's all they Green Hornet. They love that in the 60s. You find out why he's called the Green Hornet. Nice. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, uh, you know what that means. It is a lot more... Uh, I do know what it means. Uh, there's a lot more adult content and it's a lot more, more serious. Violent, right? It's, guns it's more and... violent, but there's definitely a lot more guns and it really plays it a lot yeah, more okay. low-key. But what's kind of interesting is this happens just three episodes in. You don't see them again on the show until towards the end of the season, and there's actually a proper crossover episode where they come in and fight an adventure with Batman and Robin. Oh, is which season is so that? So that's at the end of the second season. Oh, cool. So that happened in March in 1967. So I think we've got, you know, weeks upon weeks until we get to that. Amazing. But it's coming. All right. Batman and Robin never appeared in the Green Hornet show, however, except there was a few moments where there's like a TV on and you see like a Batmobile on it and there's a few moments like that. But it was never like a dedicated appearance. Uh, John, you've got your nerd credentials. Uh, Green Hornet, was that ever a character you've been to? Not really. I mean, I grew up as uh, primarily a Marvel kid and then I sort of switched over to DC. But because yeah. Green Hornet was produced uh, by one of the independent companies, and I think in black and white as well in the early days, I wasn't really interested in it. it always oh, like the movie to... serials or the TV show? I know. The, uh, actually, I'm talking about the comic books. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Um, and I, I must admit, I never really came across the TV series. I mean, when I first came across um, 60s Batman... I, I thought it was fabulous and I was like about six or seven years old. Mm. But this was on British television on the afternoon and I don't think they expanded their programming to include the sort of the companion pieces, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know about the original airing of the program, but I know that we had it here on FX on Foxtel in about like 97, 98. Mm -hmm. And I saw it on there straight after I saw Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which has a scene where you see the first episode yeah, being filmed. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and like Bruce Lee has, like, this amazing martial arts sequence. Yeah. I'd have to slow him down because he's too much for 1960s camera work. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I, I really liked it. I remember Dragon. it being good. That was Jason Scott Lee, was it? Yeah. 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 As opposed to Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah, which she would be a really different film. Good. Yeah, I think <laughs> you'd be surprised. Can she do those flip kicks? Yeah. Jean-Claude Van Damme style? She can do some kicks. <laughs> I have to point out that, once again... The woman henchman gets cold feet at the end of the episode. She doesn't want to hurt poor Batman and Robin. Why do these people sign up for this gig? Part of the gig is you're going to hurt Batman and Robin. You'd imagine that would have to be one of the draw cards. Yeah. But I mean, sometimes you never, it's like meeting your heroes and things don't really work out as you want. Sometimes never meet your villain. But in the interview for that position, you assume they would ask, do you want to hurt Batman and Robin? Because that's all we're doing. See, I think it's a, a sort of a reverse Stockholm syndrome that the kidnappers are actually feeling for their victim and therefore flip over to his viewpoint. And then, you know, because he's, he's a big hunk of man as well, that wouldn't hurt. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a slab of meat. Yeah, now we do get a good callback to the previous episode where you had that giant sphinx, if you remember from the first two-parter. Yes. Yeah, it was out in the parklands at Gotham Central Park, I guess it was called. Uh, here we see that Bruce Wayne has apparently bought the sphinx statue, at which point King Tart says that it's probably revenge for having kidnapped him a year prior which is weird because this is technically the exact same year. So I don't know if this episode's in the future or what's oh, happening. It's so complicated. It's, it's a lot going on. You may be putting more thought into it than they did. <laughs> Possibly, and that's more than likely. Okay, so you've got Robin who's hidden inside it. Now he fumbles the controller and the whole oh, jig is up. He's an idiot. Robin is a moron. But Absolutely. No, there are two things to take away here. One, you're calling him a moron, John, but it's important to consider the fact that... You do learn a lot of lessons in life, and as Batman explains... Experience teaches slowly, Robin. 
and at a cost of many mistakes. A lot of mistakes. That is true. I, I wrote down that quote myself. It is an inspirational quote, and um, you have to wonder how many times he says it. Because yeah. Robin just keeps making the same mistakes again and again and again. But eventually he'll learn. And well, when he becomes Nightwing. Well, this is it. And when I heard that line, it took me back to what John Bohm, the SBS Vice Land and Program Manager, had suggested right at the beginning. And he was saying that there's just a lot of lessons that you do learn from Batman, which are actually good for kids to learn about civic duty and becoming a better person. That's kind of one of those lines. I think it's a good lesson for the kids. I was really let down because in a previous episode, we learned that you have to be careful who you accept lemonade from. At that uh, prohibition party... Uh, where they're just serving lemonade, and uh, it's drugged. Yeah, and well, Batman says, "You have don't, don't just take lemonade from anyone. And then the same thing happens in this episode. He takes lemonade from just anyone. But that was, part of, it. That was part of his plan, because he'd, he'd preloaded, remember? So it was he was just doing, you know, what he was expected to do, and I was, it all fell into his web of mastery. May I treat you to a lemonade? Thank you, Commissioner. That sounds refreshing. Oh, Commissioner Gordon offers them... If you can't trust the commissioner of police, who are you supposed to trust? He is a dead dummy. Yeah, I wouldn't he... trust lemonade from him. I'm very sorry to disturb you, but this is very important. Now listen very carefully. This is what you have to do. If you get lost on the street, you can't find a police officer. And he's the, he's the top police officer. All right. Okay. Now, the other thing that I thought was interesting was in regards to the Sphinx. Apparently, Bruce was planning to donate it to the Black Museum. And I heard that phrase. I've never heard the phrase Black Museum before. What did he say? The Black Museum. He's donating it to the Black Museum. Scotland Yard. What the f*** is that? (laughs) Black Museum. It's actually not what you think it is. The Black Museum is a museum that actually exists. It's also known as the Crime Museum of Scotland Yard. It's a collection of criminal memorabilia and it's kept at New Scotland Yard. What else is there? Uh, All sorts of gear. It's a lot of property that was gathered under the authority of the Prisoner's Property Act of 1869. Right. You know the one. Oh, yeah, I had a bunch of stuff stolen. (laughs) Yeah, no, I figured. Uh, The museum, it came to existence in 1974, unofficially. By 1975, it became an official museum. While it's not open to the public, a police inspector and a police constable is assigned to have official duty there. And I guess it's a resource for various police across London. In 1966, do you think that's an obscure reference to make on a children's show? I mean, it's an obscure reference in 2017. So strange. Although maybe they like the implication. Maybe they just wanted to play stronger in the South. Oh, <laughs> oh John. John. <laughs> I'm sorry, John's but people in the South is not racist. Spreading in the 60s. His, John spreading his wings <laughs> on Batman land. Um, yeah, possible, possible. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Now John's killed the podcast. I've killed the podcast. Okay, (laughs) I'd like to bring up one point here. At one point, um, Batman says he used a radioactive capsule to track someone. He planted it in his belt. I think this may be how he tracks Tut down towards the end of the episode. Oh, right. And it was like, thanks, Batman, you've just different testicle cancer. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. That's Radioactivity, nice. you don't play around with that. You don't slip that in people's belts. <laughs> no. That's not cool. Now, just getting back to the idea of casual racism, uh, it makes me think about Chief O'Hara, the resident problematic character here on Batman Land. There was one line delivery he gave that actually had me laughing out loud, and it was when he said, Army eyes playing me tricks. <laughs> Army eyes playing me tricks. Yes. Army eyes playing me tricks. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> it's fantastic. He's in good shape, though, for an older man, particularly well, considering... doing those flips. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that was mad. Well, he was on drugs. That can give you amazing athletic powers, apparently. 
what do we know what he was on? I assumed it was cocaine by the sort of the reaction. (laughs) Okay, that's more of an LSD thing to jump out the window. Possibly. Look, I mean, I don't really know drugs all that much, but from my loose familiarity, like from what I know, he would be going around hugging everyone. So it's probably not those drugs. Oh, yeah, right. Early designer drug, perhaps. Yeah. Was Timothy Leary ever a villain on the Batman series? He could have been a consultant. I watch these sometimes with my child and I always appreciate his reactions. I mean, he's very unimpressed generally. Although he really likes it, but he's also, you know, now he's brainwashed by the new stuff. Hmm. I thought it was funny when um, King Tut starts to cry at the end of the (laughs) episode. And my seven-year-old said, I haven't seen any of the other villains cry like this. And he looked kind of embarrassed for King Tut. <laughs> Poor deluded man. That's sweet. Yeah. I mean, that, that to be fair, most of the villains, it's more of a, a rage against the, uh, the universe than break down in yeah. tears sort of uh, finish. King Tut just loses it. In fairness to King Tut, he doesn't really want to be a villain. It's only when he's been knocked on the head That's and then true. he thinks that he's a villain. And is he unfairly vilified as a mental illness victim? Well, that, that's the 60s for you, isn't it? I mean, you know, you look at the state of the mental health uh, system today and it must have been incrementally worse in the 60s. So you'd have to think in, in if this was real life, he would have been locked up. Yeah. You know, th- there's no excuse that, oh, you know, I turn into a, an Egyptian god when I'm hit on the head. There was less of it in this two-parter, but in the first two-parter with him, you did find, I think Robin particularly had like a fair bit of concern for the situation he was in. That's true. Yeah. He's dumb, but he's sensitive. Okay, so we like to get to know our guests here in Batman land. John, you are a hardcore Batman nerd. Now, you discovered this podcast not even because you're an SBS person or knew that it came from SBS. You just came across it because you're looking for Batman stuff. I did. I was just surfing the net looking for Batman stuff, um, you know, looking for uh, news about new movies and what's going on and, you know, whether Ben Affleck's going to hang around and all that sort of thing. And I came across this podcast. It was actually in a comment on Reddit, I think, that I came across what? it. The hive of scum and villainy that is Reddit. Um, it was just referenced, oh, you know, this new podcast's out there and this person seemed to like it. So I, I checked it out. And I they think liked it, was it. Your second or third episode. Oh, we should have ridden that wave. Those Reddit oh, people, they don't no, like they can a lot turn of on things. You. you don't want to try to embrace the next clause. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, I went from there and I'm a big podcast fan. So to, to find something that sort of ticks that niche of, you know, campy classic sort of um, action and sincerity, it's great. Yeah, so who's your Batman? Do you go to the Adam West or are you maybe a Michael Keaton? Look, I, I always compare them to West. Mm. but I West must, is best. West is best. But I must say, having just seen the Justice League movie, Ben Affleck actually comes closest to getting Bruce Wayne right, just in terms of his balance between caring for the world and being a fascist wanting to control everything. And so I think West did that really well in a soft 60s way, but no one really captured that until um, until Affleck. And he looks like he's about to flee the role as well, which is a bit of a shame. A lot of reviews uh, complained about Affleck's performance, especially in this latest movie, because they thought he was too dour and brooding. Mm. That's kind of what Bruce Wayne is like, right? He's not it, a lot it of, is, he's not tons you know, of fun. Bruce isn't a party guy. No. And, you know, if he is, he's putting it on. He's not like Tony Stark, who is genuinely mm. sort of an alcoholic party man. Yeah. And so I, I think he's, the depiction of that, sort of works and when when you look at George Clooney playing Bruce Wayne it really did seem like well it was, it was George Clooney in a Batman suit with nipples you know there was no Bruce Wayne there at all as far as I could tell right but isn't really George Clooney kind of Bruce Wayne in a lot of ways well I, I think that's probably why he was cast yeah but like um, when you cast a rapper to play themselves I'm thinking of 50 cent 50 mm. cent I'm sorry it's really hard to do you know, you, you're, a, you're a guy who gets shot nine times and you just can't manage to do it. It's, it's a tough, tough gig for some people, I think. 
What was your first um, introduction to Batman in life? Was it this show? It was this show. Yeah. Uh, it was um, on, I think, in repeats uh, afternoon when I got home from school when I was living in England. And I immediately pestered my parents to go out and buy me a Batman toy. I'm sorry, Dan, did you know that our guest lived in England for, um, for a time? Only because he mentioned a little while ago, but yes. <laughs> Normally we like to screen that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, sorry. that's okay. I, I, I'm, I'm not fit to run for parliament. Okay. But for many, many other reasons. Uh, but no, I, I asked my parents to buy me a, a Batman toy and they got me something that looked very similar, remarkably enough, to this stretch Batman I am now holding in my hand. And it was my pride and joy. And that Friday night, three days after it had been bought for me, um, we were having the customary family bonfire and I had a pile of sticks in one hand and Batman in the other. And my mother said to me, be careful what you throw in the fire. So, of course, I threw Batman in the fire because I'm a moron. Oh. And my father, credit him, stuck his hand in the fire and pulled it out oh for me. Oh, my God. So my first Batman toy was this sort of vaguely melted, sad-looking Batman. But, you know, my pride and joy for many years. Was your father parental love. forever scarred? Uh, well, from that, for many other reasons. He, he had a hard life as well. He was a paratrooper and that sort of thing. So, wow. you know, he was scarred from, you know, just experience. <laughs> he wasn't scarred from, like, one half of the face by any chance. Not quite two-faced guard, although no. he did only have nine fingers. What? Because he cut one off with a chainsaw. Was he trying to save another one of your toys? Oh uh, no, he was just trying to trim a hedge with okay. a, a tool that was slightly more powerful oh than he needed for the job. <laughs> so you're into your Batman toys. You brought in two Batman toys. You got Stretch Batman and a little Lego King Tut. That a very slim well. Lego King Tut because they don't make fat slim. Lego figurines. <laughs> Yeah, why are they so weightist? Uh, it's, it's tough, isn't it? I guess it just must be mass production and, you know, yeah, don't want to encourage obesity among your kiddies. Oh, maybe just need to reflect humanity a little bit more at the moment. But you're clearly into your toys. Were you much of a toy collector pre-working in a comic book store? Um, or did that the help toy co- The toy collection spawned the job in the comic book store. Yeah. I think I bought my first toy as an adult. Yeah, I used that word advisedly when I was about 18. And it was a Batman. It was a sort of, you know, classic comic book Batman um, from about the 70s, Neil Adams design, I think it was. And then from there, because I have a vaguely addictive personality, it just sort of continued. So every, you know, couple of months I'd get a new action figure and I'd add it to the diorama and then once a year I'd go out and get a new tattoo and I always promised myself I'd eventually get a Batman tattoo. And so that eventually happened and my wife just looked at it and shook her head. What's your Batman tattoo? Well, you, you know how some people use the phrase, uh, what would Jesus do? Sure. I asked myself, what would Batman do? So that's what my tattoo says. It's WW, the Batman symbol. And, and where is it? It's on my calf. I will. There you go. Look at that. And I had to explain that the tattoo was five or six times while he was doing it. Was right. like, what does this mean? I don't understand. It's like, it doesn't matter if you understand it. It's for me. What so- would Batman do? How has being becoming a parent changed or affected how you're a fan or a nerdy fan comic? It gives me He's trying to use the word man-child and avoid oh, oh, look, it. absolutely yeah. man-child. No, I think everyone who knows me would agree with that. Look, it gives me more of an excuse, frankly. Um, okay. I, I pretty much go to see every superhero movie that comes out now because the kids want to go. Um, if I'm tossing up whether to buy a toy or not, I'll ask them, and the answer's always yes. So um, <laughs> It's for the kids. Oh, it's for the kids. It's a, yeah. it's a shared experience, you know. It's, it's not like the Lego movie where, you know, the kids aren't allowed to touch stuff. If the kids want to play with the toys, they play with them. And, you know, if they get broken, they can get glued back together. Are they as um, enthusiastic as you are about? Um, I would say not quite as enthusiastic, but they both have their favourite characters, and my daughter really likes the strong female sort of things, loved Wonder Woman, loves the Supergirl TV show and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it's great now that the next generation do have those positive role models as well. At the very beginning of this, I mentioned that you were a comic book retailer. Mm. So you're working it for Phantom Zone. Now, I'm trying to remember exactly what years you were doing it, but this was kind of at the peak where 
you had, the, I think, sort of 1992 is really where the peak started taking off, where you've got X-Men comics selling in the millions mm-hmm. and going forward. Like, this is roughly when you started working I there? started there in uh, in 92. I, yeah. I finished school in 91 and uh, walked into the Phantom Zone and said, um, do you have any jobs going? And they said, oh, I thought you were a businessman. And I said, I have no idea why you would think that. <laughs> um, and so they gave me the job uh, as stock boy and I was loading the comics onto the shelf and careful not to crease any of the covers or bend any of the spines and that sort of thing. And because I loved the medium and I could talk the nerd talk, um, as people left I was raised up and to be a manager and managing a comic book store isn't particularly complex. Um, you know, don't order too many comics that have boring characters in them. You know, max out on the Batman and you should be fine. Yeah, now what are you taking away from this? So this is a time period where comics are selling in a, you know, gajillions of them. Mm. But you've also got some events taking place, particularly at DC. The Death of Superman was 1992. That led into them replacing Batman with Mm. the Nightfall comic book storyline. What were your general thoughts there? Like, what was the reaction to a lot of the fans you were talking at? Because when Batman had his back broken and replaced by the um, Azrael character, mm-hmm. uh, Jean-Paul Valley. That's correct. Yep. <laughs> Testing the limits of my memory there. Uh, when that happened, like, fans were kind of outraged because it was kind of like a hardcore, gritty, violent Batman. And mm. while those were the comics that were selling at the time, it's not what Batman was. It was one more step in what comic books have been doing for years, which is the misdirect, the bait and switch. You know, we're going to kill off your favourite character. They're never coming back. I um, mean, Marvel are doing it at the moment with the original Wolverine. You know, he's been dead. He was never going to come back and he's coming back next month. Mm. So I, I think those people who'd been reading comics a little longer knew what it was. Even so, they were buying multiple copies of it. I mean, I think I have five copies of The Death of Superman because, you know, that was what you did. Yeah, yeah, so do I. Mm. And, you know, all worth as much as you paid for them, which is great. Um, But it was an interesting time. I I enjoyed the whole Nightfall storyline and and that came after that. I did sort of like the different take on Batman, particularly when he sort of started going to the the hyper-violent Punisher-esque Batman. I thought that was a different take for the character. But equally, when they inevitably brought Bruce back, I thought it was, you know, well needed. Do you remember what people in the store were saying at the time? There were a lot of people who were vaguely annoyed by it and a lot of conversations of, you know, this is not my Batman. And, you know, it's great that people get that passionate, but really it's it's no one's Batman. It's whoever is creating or writing that particular, you know, be it movie, TV show, comic book. You know, it's a character that could be interpreted different ways, which is why you can't say that Batman doesn't kill because you look at Tim Burton's Batman, he killed a bunch of people. So you don't get riled up. You're not an angry comic book fan. Oh, look, um, I've tried to get less angry about things in general as, I, as I've got That's older. Quite, quite um, because, yeah, look, I mean, it, I think it's good to be passionate about certain things. Um, who's, who's the best Batman is probably not top of that list, although that might be, you know, totally off base. I could be, you know, there could be hundreds of people listening to this or shaking their fists at their digital devices. Well, people lose their minds over this stuff. Oh, look, I, I have no doubt that, you know, if I actually put out my social media thing, I'd get people calling back saying, Affleck is the worst Batman and you're an idiot for saying that he's good. And look, that could well be the case because it's down to personal taste, really. Now, I just want to get back to the retail thing. Absolutely. This, this is a very unique time period that you're working in. Uh, how long were you there for? Like, when did you leave? The uh, whole time I was at uni, so three years. Yeah, so 92 through 95. That's right, yeah. Because it's around like 95, 96 that the comics stopped being massive sellers and just plummeted dramatically. Yeah. And so were you witnessing that as you were leaving? Just as I was leaving and it was sort of the market was starting to contract. Uh, a lot of the people who had massive standing orders where you'd put aside the comics for them, you know, yeah. they some people would be spending 200 bucks a week at the height of it and it would just be cutting down and down and some people would just not show up and call and say, no, I'm not coming back to pay that $600 I owe you. 
So, what? oh yeah, people would build up these huge things, and because you'd ordered them for them, theoretically it was theirs. You just need to be paid for it. But oh. clearly a broken mechanic, because yeah, we ended up you know owning a lot of stuff. It's just like great, I've got a full run of Punisher Warzone here that nobody wants. Right. So, yeah, you did see that. And the other thing that really hurt it was the speculators, people mm. buying comics because they thought they would go up in value. And, I yeah. mean, while that does happen like now and Superman again. 75 buyers. Yeah, exactly. And Detective Comics 1, that sort of thing in 17. But if you're trying to do that as someone who doesn't know anything about the industry, you're inevitably going to sort of go in the wrong direction and that's what people did. And, you know, I've got multiple copies of, as I said, Death of Superman, X-Men 1 with the five copies. I bought five of each. Yep. And, I mean, that's well over 100 bucks on one comic book that sucked. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't necessarily learn from working in the environment, but it was an interesting time to be there. And what happens now when you walk into a comic book store? Because a comic book environment these days is quite different where there's actually girls working in comic book stores. There are, yeah. Um, and it, it's great to see because, I mean, you used to get some girls coming in and it was always good to have that little bit of sort of the, the one or two percent of the, the great unwashed masses of, masses of males. Um, but now it's become a lot more balanced and I think there's just a lot more out there in terms of variety. I mean, diversity in comics is something that's been discussed a lot over the past 18 months and Marvel took a massive hit on sales after they diversified a lot of their characters. But the thing is, it's not just young white males out there in the world and if they want to, you know, continue for next generations, they really do have to speak to everyone. Earlier you mentioned going from being a Marvel person to a DC mm. person. We've talked about on this show how <clears throat> the DC versus Marvel thing is a, is a big deal and people get attacked online for being mm. too pro one or the other. What makes someone go from Marvel to DC? What makes a Marvel person versus a DC I'd person? I've probably been reading Marvel comics for about 10 or so years and led with X-Men. Um, that being their flagship title and that sort of thing. I never really got into the Avengers until the movies came out. But I just got a little bit tired of the sort of repetitive storylines and that's when I started to get into the slightly more adult approach via Batman of Justice League because it was a little bit more, to my eye at the time, nuanced and intelligent as opposed to, you know, your battle of the week. We like to wind out the podcast every week with what we've learned from Batman Nick, do you want to kick us off? What have you learned from Batman this week? So as to not overlap with all of the other things that I learned from this episode, which we've already kind of discussed, I learned that an obviously fake crocodile can sometimes make a superhero just as afraid as a, as a real one. I mean, it can just kind of open its mouth every five minutes or so, really robotically, and that's <laughs> enough to make somebody fear for their lives. John? I learned if you spell your name slowly, everybody will know who you are. Look, that's a very important lesson. Very good. It's really good when you talk to people that don't speak English very well. Mm, that, that was my father's approach when he was in the uh, Middle East. Speak slowly <laughs> and loudly. What I learned this week, and it's not really a positive lesson, but it's that hieroglyphics uh, that are self-taught, they're a chore to do. Right. Mm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And not really necessarily a lesson I really need to take on in life that often. Oh, wait, I learned something else. What have you got? I learned that if you drink a lot of milk... And coat your stomach. You can take whatever drugs you want and it won't affect you. No, I tried that on the weekend. It doesn't work. John. You're a father. John, this You're is a family man. It's going out into the public. It's aspirin. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to wind down Batman land for another week. Nicholas, people can find you on Twitter, right? What's going on there? I am at fake crocodile. At Nick Bassine. Sorry, at Nick Bassine on Twitter. 
Yeah. You forget it every week. Yeah. It's very embarrassing. Really weird. John, you're not really on Twitter anymore. I'm not hugely on Twitter, but I do have a Twitter account. It's at BlackMagicJohn. Blackmagic being the name of my balloon. So if you want to tweet at me, I may see it in six months or so. I'm very glad you pointed out that it was your balloon. You can also contact John for SBS sales opportunities. (laughs) Yes. Contact a salesperson. I'm a strategist. I don't like to do that sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, you can find me at the Dan Barrett on Twitter. And we like people talking about Batman Land on the Twitters or the Facebooks. Use the hashtag Batman Land. Helps people find the show. Also, if you're listening to this and you're enjoying the podcast for whatever reason, leave a review. Helps other people find the show. Please be positive, otherwise they're not going to listen. And very big thanks to Jeremy Walmart, our producer. He's often unsung. He usually likes it that way. We'll be back next week. Same Batman Land time. Same Batman Land channel. No.